Put the people in my brain To new pens to have a go I'd like to be a gallery Put you all inside my show Andy Warhol looks a scream Hang him on my wall Andy Warhol silver scream Can't tell them apart at all This is John DeFalb from John Sandow's Bookshop in London. Today I have great pleasure in welcoming to our podcast series Charles Somery Smith. Charles started teaching at the V&A in 1982 and has been director of the National Portrait Gallery, director of the National Gallery and secretary and chief executive of the Royal Academy of Arts. Besides this extremely active career in museums and galleries, he has written several books of which the newest for Thames and Hudson is The Art Museum in Modern Times. It is a subject about which he knows a great deal because both at the NPG and at the National Gallery he oversaw major extensions. So welcome Charles. Thank you. Will you begin please by giving us just a brief outline of what was involved in those extensions before we get to the book? Yes, so I got interested in museum building when I went to the National Portrait Gallery in 1994 because it's hard to reconstruct that moment, which I tried to do to an extent in the book, when the National Lottery suddenly became available and there was a feeling that it was possible to expand existing institutions in a potentially adventurous way. So that up until that point, I hadn't really been particularly interested or knowledgeable about contemporary architecture. And I suddenly realised that actually we were going to have to choose an architect as quickly as possible in order to put in an application to the Lottery Fund. So I spent my first nine months going around meeting architects. I had rather a good head of administration who had come from the government's property services agency, and he talked to the RIBA how to manage an architectural competition. And, and he very sensibly suggested, well, don't just meet people at interview, go and meet them in their studios, and if possible, go and look at a building with them. And that experience of going to look at buildings with architects and talking to them about how they work very much changed my view of contemporary architecture. And, and uh, so it was the, the availability of funding, in effect, at the NPG, which drove you into what became a, a, an interesting... Yeah, yes, I, th I think people forget that in the 80s there was very little money available for building projects. Paris was doing the Grand Projet, but in London, the National Museums, I was at the v and and the v and was pretty run down, didn't have money to do new gallery developments. People have forgotten that actually it was quite depressing. And then suddenly, John Major never gets the credit for having invented the National Lottery. And the National Lottery was then distributed partly through the Arts Council and partly through the Heritage Lottery Fund and partly through the Millennium Commission. And there was a feeling in London, very much at that moment, that Britain needed to catch up with the rest of the world and do things which were very adventurous for the Millennium. Some of them didn't work, but people, I think, haven't really registered the extent to which the museums and the theatres and the public for cultural facilities of London were pretty well transformed in the next 10 years. And, and you had the opportunity of doing that again at the National Gallery, or a comparable... Well, extent. so the, I sometimes think I was probably partly hired by the National Gallery because they had seen what we had done at the Portrait Gallery and they, I think, were a bit jealous of it. And they had an architectural competition and they ended up choosing the same architects, uh, Jeremy Dixon and Edward Jones. But I always had the impression that they didn't really know why they had done it. They just did it because it was the thing to do and because Norman Foster was redoing Trafalgar Square. But they didn't have, in my view, a very comfortable relationship with the architects. And their scheme at the National Gallery, in fact, I don't cover it in the book because I've always felt it was only half a scheme because they originally wanted to open up the whole of the ground floor. 
and the National Gallery decided only to do half and they've ended up only doing half. Somebody, including me, should probably have said to them, look, it's absurd to do half a project because you'll never do the other half, which is exactly what's happened. And then I went to the Royal Academy and I, by then I was rather enthusiastic about building projects because they're, they're ways of changing the way institutions work. And the Royal Academy had put into the Heritage Lodge Fund in 2001 for a big scheme, but they hadn't got funding. And so by the time I went there in 2007, it looked a bit like the V&A looked in the 1980s, a bit shabby and down at heel, and it didn't have sort of proper visitor facilities and the loos were sort of not very good. And they had acquired this big building just north of the Royal Academy uh, in Burlington Gardens, the old Museum of Mankind. And they didn't really know what to do. And I thought, which indeed was true, it would be exciting to be in charge of it. To open up the question, or various questions, about museums and public and private financing and so forth, you embark on a remarkable tour of world museums um, to investigate how they've changed over a hundred years. Um, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, Tate Modern, Getty Center in Los Angeles, Pompidou, um, then in Berlin, Sao Paulo, Fort Worth, Abu Dhabi, there are, uh, there are numerous other, much smaller ones. Will you tell us a little about those? Yes, so when I was coming up to leaving the Royal Academy in 2017, as you know, I'd done a book about East London and I thought I might do another topographical book, but Thomas and Hudson said, no, we want a real book, which I understood what they meant, you know, a, a serious book, solid and serious book. And I had ages before done the Slade Lectures at Oxford in 2002, but I'd never published them. So I'd kept up this interest in museums. And exactly as you describe, I, well, the truth is I started doing it chronologically. I started doing it decade by decade using case studies. And I used, as you describe, the major museums and institutions, Tate Modern um, and the Sainsbury Wing and so on and so forth as, as examples. And then when I'd finished the first draft, I showed it to various people and I could tell that none of them thought it was very good <laughs> for one reason or another. I think I was trying to do a bit too much. So at that stage, I shrunk it down to only new buildings and added, for example, the Museum of Modern Art. But what I tried to do is exactly as you described, not just cover the famous well-known ones, but also to try and give a feel for the smaller, essentially the ones I like. I mean, it's it's a personal selection. So that, for example, I included the Christchurch Picture Gallery. Well, nobody probably would say the Christchurch Picture Gallery is amongst the 40 most important museums in the world. But on the other hand, I first visited it very soon after it opened in 1968. And I've always thought it's a model of a small museum, very beautifully displayed, very well constructed and very good daylight, even though it's underground. And... I, so I, I only selected museums which I'd visited and I basically only selected museums I liked and admired. Uh, I think when one's a museum director, uh, you can't really be too critical of what other people are doing. So that I avoided having to be critical by only selecting ones I generally admired. But um, they differ so widely. So for example, you mentioned one in Denmark. Uh, Tell us about that. Yeah, so Louisiana is very much... There are certain museums which are touchstones, I think, for museum professionals, of which Louisiana is an example. So it was opened in the 1950s by this person who had made a lot of money out of soft cheese. And then he was asked on a radio programme what he thought of the National Museum in Copenhagen. And said if only it could get outside and there could be... It could be more casual um, because it was that 50s move against the uh, 19th century idea of the museum in a very formal way in the centre of the city. And then when he had sold his business, he decided to construct the museum himself in the fields by the sea. And 
I think it had a huge influence internationally because people would go and they admired it because it's very daylit, it's more contemporary, and it's it's a very nice place to visit. So actually, I was asked when I was at the Portrait Gallery, not long after the Independent started, um, the then editor of the Independent on Sunday's magazine asked me to do a series on museums, of which there was only ever one, which was Louisiana. So that I said, oh, I'd like to go to Louisiana. So actually, that was the first case study, because I wrote a piece for the Independent on Sunday, and then either she left or the magazine folded or something. And so in a way, the, the book is the, the going on with the series. But it's interesting because of the way in which you present it as being influential and it comes early in your book and then we see in the course of the book many others which may be described perhaps as being um, is using that as their model culminating in your in the context of your book perhaps in the I think it's called the Mona Museum in Hobart and what, what so I should add, I think, for the benefit of listeners, that in the Louisiana in Denmark, it was made for, built for, for the client, for the patron's own collection. I think that's right, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's correct. So the reason it's been influential is it's a single person's collection. It starts as a collection. I think probably it's broadened in scope since his death. Uh, and now it's more like a public museum, but it starts as a private collection. But it, and so comparably with, for example, the Sainsbury collection in East Anglia um, and many others that have happened, it starts off as an individual collection, which the, the, that collector who, uh, with, who has their own source of wealth um, can call the shots about how the museum is made and built and designed and how the collection is displayed. And then you get to the, a, 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 something which almost seems like an anti-gallery in, in, in Hobart. What, what happened there? Well, well, let me do the Sainsbury Centre first, because yeah. that is correctly modelled really on Louisiana. So Bob and Lisa Sainsbury had collected rather eclectically contemporary ceramics and uh, sort of Mesoamerican things, pre-Columbian. And I didn't know that they offered their collection in the first instance to the Fitzwilliam, uh, where he had been an undergraduate. And the Fitzwilliam said, fine, but we'll take the pictures and we'll send all the archaeological stuff to the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. And they wanted it integrated because they viewed it as being part of a single aesthetic, which was their aesthetic. And then they met the then young-ish Vice-Chancellor of University of East Anglia, which was just being set up. And he persuaded them to open the collection there. And they were very much in charge of it. I mean, I never met Paul Sainsbury, but I did meet Lisa Sainsbury, and she oversaw everything that happened and the choice of the designer and the printing of the catalogues and the typography. And, and that's obviously the pleasure for a private individual that they can oversee everything in the way they want it to be. And that is definitely a theme of the book. So Mona is slightly different because that's been built by this man called David Walsh, who I've never met, who, um, started out i mean he made he's made his money out of gambling he's just as staggeringly successful uh, at gambling so now he's i think banned from casinos because he's somehow devised a way of breaking the bank and uh, he started off collecting classical antiquities and he did this museum his own private museum of classical antiquities and he himself thought it was really boring he couldn't understand why it didn't give him the sort of excitement that he had from collecting and acquiring. Once it was all static and labelled and displayed, nobody came to see it. So then what he did was he hired three people from, I think, Sotheby's in Melbourne, and he told them to travel around the world to see what worked. And what they felt worked were, in a way, the unconventional museums 
like the Soane Museum. Um, and the Soane Museum doesn't really have labels. It's just the idea of an experience, not a history. There's no sense in which it's didactic. It's about visual experience. And they came back. There was an exhibition which I didn't see in Venice at the Venice Biennale in 2006 by somebody called Axel Vervoort, who's a um, Dutch collector um, who started doing exhibitions in which he mixed antiquities and Anish Kapoor. It's, it's a sort of visual effect, rather theatrical. I mean, somebody said to me uh, uh, a month or so ago, after I'd done a talk, they said, oh, oh, it's obvious what happens. Museums change from being archives to being theatre. And in a way, I wish I'd thought of that myself, because it's a very useful encapsulation. And Mona is very, very theatrical. So you go underground and you start, like in a theatre, with a bar, so that, you know, you can get yourself tanked up before you go round. And then and then you don't really know where you're going. It's it's an it's very much a sort of experience. But I personally thought it was very, very powerful and very effective. And and what is the collection there? Well, his collection is a strange mixture. Um so he started collecting antiquities quite seriously. Uh, he said had a lot of money. Um but now his taste is a bit like that of Charles Sauchi. So um, he, he likes things which give you a kind of um, either sexual or death. They're, they're about sex or death. Um, but, but they're serious. I mean, I think he's a, a, a serious collector. And the, the benefit of it is that it's all a single uniform aesthetic so that you know, you're you're not seeing lots of different things. You're seeing things through the eyes of one person. The um, a question that surfaces in almost every example you give in your book, all the case studies, is is the relationship that um, the varying relationships that exist between patrons, clients, and museum directors, and the architects. Um, and these are they're they're very interesting divergences there. You, you talk about Alfred Barr, MoMA, um, Kimball, and then we've mentioned Robert and Lisa Sainsbury with Norman Foster. Um, an interesting one, um, before moving on to a couple of others that I'd like you to mention, is uh, Dominic Domenial in Houston. Something d different is happening there. Yes, well, not so different from what we've been talking about. So the Domenials were aristocratic French. He went to uh, Texas because he, he had been involved in invention, inventing some way of doing oil drilling, which was hugely profitable. Um, but they were encouraged by this Catholic monk to take an interest in contemporary art. And they started acquiring, and because the oil wells were... <laughs> gushing money, uh, they became hugely wealthy and he would go to New York. They would both go to New York and they started collecting relatively conservatively Cezanne's. And then they started becoming more adventurous. I, I sense she was very, very uh, both intellectual and knowledgeable. And she sort of got involved in the art history department at the University of Houston. And they started doing work for the University of Houston. And then, as often happens with bureaucracies, that individuals get impatient with the way bureaucracies operate. And they think, well, we'd like to do it our own way. And then uh, he dies and she decides um, that she'll construct the museum Partly, I think, as a memorial to him, Jean de Menil, and um, or John, as he knew him, it was known in Houston. <laughs> and um, she talks to people and decides, although she doesn't like the Pompidou, interestingly, but everybody encourages her to meet Renzo Piano. And Renzo Piano uh, flies to Houston 
and she was obviously a very good you know very um like having people to stay and he goes and stays and they uh, he describes i think how they sat over a kitchen table and discussed what he'd like to do and by then he was in a post pompidou phase and in, in, in Pompidou, he and Richard Rogers, I think, were deliberately rebellious. But by the 80s, the Manila uh, collection, as it's shown in, in Houston, is, is more sort of beautiful, beautifully crafted. He's very good at, at um, what I think of the engineering of a museum, particularly the lighting. A lot of the drawings are about the quality of lighting. But they had particular ideas about how they wanted their collection displayed again. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Manil was one of the ones I added after the, so to speak, first edition. I had been to it, but I haven't been back to it. What I remember of it is being a very nice integration of greenery. I mean, a lot of the museums, I think, which have a nice environment are not too enclosed. And also, she was quite tough. You know, there's no cafe or bookshop. The bookshop is over the street in a separate building. The idea was that when you were in the building, you just looked at art. And she also had a combination, which is quite common to private collectors, of storage on site and then rotating the works of art in the main gallery spaces. So there's a sense that you can see the works in storage. It's it's integrated. And, and the, but the... the, the... Although it's built by a high-profile architect, the focus is on the collection. Yeah, very much so. And I think, again, museum people tend to very much admire the um, Manil collection in Houston and the Baila, also done by Renzo Piano, done by a, a, a dealer, um, Baila, just on the outskirts of, of Basel. I think for the same reasons that they provide what people think of as the perfect environment for looking at paintings. But the, 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 that perhaps can be contrasted dramatically by a, a, another interesting client-architect relationship with the Guggenheim and Bilbao, yeah, where so, the focus yeah, of, so. seems to be entirely on the building. Yeah, I mean... Uh, it happens I've just been rereading the discussions about the Guggenheim Bilbao, and it was generated by the Basque government. The president of the Basque government wanted to do something for Bilbao, and he had he wanted a new airport, a new subway system, and a new museum. And he heard that uh, the Guggenheim was thinking of doing branch museums in both Salzburg and in Venice. Tom Krenz had become director in 1998. And then um, he gets a phone call from the president of the Basque government and goes off and talks to him about what he envisaged. And Tom Krenz is a museum director who, in the spectrum of are they very collections oriented or are they very architecture oriented, Tom is at the extreme end of being architecture-oriented. You know, he's excited by adventurous buildings. And, and it is, it's a, it's a very adventurous building. Uh, and um, Krenz insisted on relatively conventional uh, um, galleries inside, uh, which the architects were annoyed by, because, of course, it slightly jeopardised the freedom of invention. I mean, the Guggenheim Bilbao, everybody, including me, thinks of as a building. It doesn't really... I don't even know what the nature of its collection is. I discovered that Tom Krenz insisted on the Basque government coughing up $100 million uh, in 1992 in order to build on their existing collection. But I don't know what the state of the collection is now. It's, it's a centre for... Exhibitions. It's more like a Kunsthalle than a museum. It's a, it's a rather fascinating uh, development, that, isn't it? The idea of a, something which calls itself a museum or a gallery actually existing in some way independently of its collection. And um, 
again, when you say that it exists partly for temp temporary exhibitions and exhibition space, it, it leads us towards a change which underlies a lot of this, which is the, the shift away from galleries and museums providing a narrative, providing a sense of art history, but developing into something else, a different conceptual space. Yes, it, it came out, I didn't write the book in order to demonstrate that change. I was to an extent aware of it. I mean, I wanted to work out in my own mind um, what had happened during my adult lifetime. And obviously one of the things which happened was that museums changed from being as they were when I first went to the BNA, 1982, rather scholarly and academic. And I'm afraid to say at that time, curators tend to be a bit disparaging about people who might be interested in the public. It was in, about scholarly knowledge and expertise. And that now has totally changed. And the book, in a way, describes and discusses that change. And one of the things which I, I was conscious of, because it was happening while I was doing what I was doing at the Portrait Gallery, that Nick Sorota came into the Tate in 1988. And he was, in a way, I think, a bit like Tom Krenz, in that his interest was more in artists and in displaying the work of artists, the work of contemporary artists, and the way contemporary artists wanted it displayed, i.e. not as just a part of history, but some, some, somehow independently of history. And uh, both of them, in different ways, I think, in some ways, are anti-historical. I suppose in both cases, they're, they're playing, paying close attention also to contemporary artists and how those artists want to work and want to be displayed. But that's right. So, so uh, Tate Modern, my view is, I'm not sure I say it in the book actually, but nobody really thinks of it as the modern version of the National Gallery. It's a museum of contemporary art. Pe people are most aware of, for obvious reasons, the work in the Turbine Hall, which is a big installation by a single contemporary artist. And the new building, the Blavatnik building, is very much dominated by contemporary global artists. If you want to see early 20th century French paintings, you don't automatically think of going to the Tate. And that is a, is a shift because up until that point, the Tate had been seen as, as it was described in the 1920s, the National Gallery of Modern Art. You, um, you, you bring in this concept or term fourth space, which um, again is interesting and, and seems to be a new phenomenon. Yes, <laughs> I'm glad you picked that up, Johnny. I mean, um, I use the fourth space without totally understanding what it is. Uh, but I gave a talk in Madrid about the changes at the Royal Academy, which are to an extent about free public circulation space. And somebody came up to me and afterwards and said, what you're talking about is the fourth space. And uh, I, I, I picked up on that and I use, I use it only once, very judiciously, I hope, without totally knowing what... The, and I can remember looking it up and trying to figure out what they meant. But I think, you know, you have teaching space and then you have... <laughs> I don't know what the other three spaces are. <laughs> But the, the idea of the fourth space is, is the idea that people like space which doesn't have a special use, which is just sort of free public space. And, and I thought that was interesting. Yeah, a safe social space. Yeah, safe so social space. Which Tate Modern certainly seems to have in abundance. And it's why it's such fun going there, and partly that, that it mixes freely between the turbine hall and the shop and the, and the sense of circulation there is rather wonderful. Yeah, I was interested in the brief for the Blavatnik building, which was very much based on visitor surveys, which demonstrate that lots of people went to Tate Modern, not in order to see the collection, nor indeed necessarily to see an exhibition, to, but to meet other people and, and its social space. Uh, and I think 
that meant that Blavatnik building, which I personally don't think is as successful as the original Tate Modern, but it is about exploration and shopping and um, not, you know, it's treating the museum experience as an experience in a way independent of the experience of art. The, just picking up on something you said earlier about the, the, the displaying objects without their context, um, it, um, or historical context, it is interesting, I, I think, that, that, that there's a parallel also with literature, where there was a great movement in so-called postmodernism in literature to, to treat a text in isolation, uh, and without any reference to the author or the author's cultural background or the the web of of, of references that might underlie a, a text, but just to, te to treat a text in isolation. Well, the, the same dynamic seems to be there in the aesthetics of or in in, in attitudes towards display. Thank, thank, thank you, Johnny. I. I... One of the things I found a tiny bit frustrating when I'd finished the book is that I know that a lot of the views and attitudes were influenced by postmodernism. But however much I've read over the years about the nature of postmodernism and what it really means, I've never totally understood uh, <laughs> what it is. And if it's about decontextualization, as you describe it, about looking at things separately from their authorship and separately from their surrounding cultural context, then that indeed is what happens in the 1990s at, at Tate Britain first, when they do these changing displays. And it's the idea that the author's view has more authority, you know, that there's no single orthodoxy in the narrative. And and I know all these things are, are part of postmodernism, but I kind of felt that this shift over time in museums obviously parallels shifts in the way, for example, history is written about and interpreted. But however hard I try, I didn't try that hard, but I did want to set it in a in a wider intellectual context, and I don't think I've really succeeded in doing that. Um, another theme that well, we've already touched on, but the distinction between private and state museums. With state-funded museums, there's a lot of emphasis on commercial spaces, perhaps, and maybe the um, social spaces, whereas in private museums, there's more of a sense, perhaps, of contemplation you refer to and... Um, there's a wonderful quote. Remind me who it was. It said something about museums being a spine for art history, as opposed to having then become a sponge, a sponge. for That's it. narcissism. That's it. That's it. Well, so when I went to the portrait gallery, the pressure, partly coming from the Heritage Lodge Fund, was to do with public access and commercialization. In Britain, the idea was that in a crude and simplistic way, museums should join the entertainment industries. And I can remember that staff at the Natural History Museum were sent off to Disney in order to learn about visitor flows. And I went off, which I had never been before, to Japan, because we were sending an exhibition called Treasures of Natural Portugal to Japan. And I went to um, a newly built museum in a town called Kanazawa. No, uh, Koryama. Uh, uh, it's about 200 miles north of Tokyo. And it had a brand new city museum. And they didn't have a collection. They had built a museum because every uh, town in Japan was so rich that they were building museums. And because they didn't have a collection, it wasn't really about display. It was about this idea of the museum being space where you could get away from the everyday world about the idea of contemplation. And they indeed had something which could have even been called a prayer room. It was about um, the idea that the state had a responsibility to provide space for contemplation. 
And that's been a move in Japan. And I found it interesting uh, and impressive that both private museums and public museums have both been interested in providing an environment which is, which is contemplative. Just in Japan or generally? Well, um, I, I, I view it in Japan. I mean, this museum in Koryama, I seem to have been the only person who's ever visited it, and even I can't rem remember the name of the architect. Um, but lots of people have been to this place, Naoshima, which is an island off the coast of Japan, where a publisher commissioned Hadio Ando to design a museum and it's treated as a place of pilgrimage. You know, you have to get a boat to it. And once you've gone there, it's like building a museum on the Isle of Skye in a way. And it is about the regeneration of a rural community. And then once he built the museum, he realized nobody would come if he didn't build a hotel. And the hotel is built like a monastery so that you spend the night and you get given a special pair of pajamas to wear. And I, I just found it interesting because it's in a way counterintuitive. It's the opposite to the way museums and galleries in this country and in America have gone, which tends to be more about uh, uh, the shop, the restaurant, and, and in a way turning up the volume, uh, whereas in Japan what they've done is turn down the volume. But that's, that's in, in Japan... The, the... It's state museums which are turning down the volume, or it, or private, it's private well, ones as well. So, so in Kanazawa, which is this quite big city on the north coast of Japan, they commissioned architects called Sana, who have been very influential subsequently. They did the Louvre in Lens and they did the New Museum in New York. Um, and they produced this rather ethereal glass museum. Um, I think it's partly because it, it, it's the sort of um, Japanese mindset. They're, they're interested and respect the idea of the ethereal. And in this country, I think the ethereal is regarded as in some way elitist and not something that everybody can enjoy and appreciate. So that we're, we're anti the idea of creating an ethereal space, but the Japanese are perfectly happy to do it. So we stick to the narcissism? Of the private museum? Well, that's probably partly why private individuals want to build their own museums, because then they're not subject to the pressures which public museums are under of, of having to, you know, have a big shop and so on and so forth. But the, the, there's a very interesting um, sort of a par parallel development here. If the growing emphasis on the aesthetics of display is partly a reaction to the traditional idea of a museum as a place of instruction, with all its accompanying labels besides the, beside the pictures, it's arguable that labels are anyway redundant now, since everyone has a phone with them where they can access the information, so that the art history is at people's fingertips anyway. And yep. they can be left alone. To... That, that's part of what I regard as the revolution of, of this museum, Mona in Hobart. Because David Walsh was very, um, you know, he describes it as an anti-museum, so that it has no labelling whatsoever. When you arrive alongside the bar, you pick up a mobile device, device which is their mobile device, called an O. And the as you walk around the museum, the device tracks where you are, and then you can find out about any of the objects, not on the wall, but on the mobile device. And, well, I think very importantly, it's not one person speaking. You can hear Walsh himself talk about why he acquired the work of art. And then you can uh, hear the curator do what Walsh calls art wank. Uh, which is, you know, uh, the sort of aesthetics of the object, if you're interested in that. And then there's probably a museum educator. And it's this idea of different voices, different narratives, which, again, is a postmodern conceit. Yeah, but it, but it means that the, the, the person, in the, the, the visitor, has a real choice between treating the museum as a place of instruction Oh, and treating it as a place of exploration. I, 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 as you can tell, I mean, I went just before lockdown. Uh, so I went in January uh, 20, when loses touch of the years, January 2020. 
Uh, it was the, my last kind of long trip. It was completely bonkers because it's not a very good place to go for a day trip. Um, and actually, you need longer. What, what I thought was very, very impressive is that every single person who goes there stays a long time. Uh, it's partly because, you know, once you've got to Hobart, you probably want to spend a long time there. But there's something about this sense of it being exploratory space and you do it yourself. And it is genuinely, I think, very democratic. So they get about 750,000 visitors. I don't know what the population of Tasmania is, probably only about 3 million, if that. So that uh, uh, people are going to enjoy themselves to explore. Do they learn anything? They probably do because they get interest in the experience of art and then they go away and learn about it separately. Um, private donors, um, of course, increasingly find the means by which they gain their wealth exposed to media scrutiny, which must be intensely disagreeable to them often. Um, but how does that impact on the future of museums, do you think? Well, luckily, as you will have seen, so I delivered the manuscript on the 31st of March, as I was required to by contract. And then almost immediately, by the 1st of April, I realised that uh, COVID was going to cause big, big problems for museums. And luckily, uh, so I wrote, in a way, an extra conclusion, summarising what I thought was going to happen. I was already very conscious of this big move against very wealthy people. Uh, it's a sort of moral disapproval of the sources of their wealth. So, I mean... Um, the, the Royal Academy has a Sackler Gallery, as does do most um, museums all over the world, in, in the Metropolitan Museum and the V&A and so on and so forth. And everybody has had to come to terms with the, the implications of, of the source of Sackler's money. But it, it's not only the Sacklers. It, it's, I think, a moral change in people's moral attitudes, where it used to be that museums and galleries were pretty accommodating about where money came from. Uh, big corporations, you, you know, I, I was in charge of the BP Portrait Award at the National Portrait Gallery, and each year there would be about three demonstrators outside. But Tate now has given up on money from BP, and if you give up on money from BP, you give up on... Um, you know, oil money and tobacco was uh, forbidden long ago. And gradually, bit by bit, I, I was discovering at the Royal Academy towards the end of my time, we set up perfectly sensibly an ethics committee. But once you start investigating big companies, and, and to be honest, also individuals, often they operate in different territories. And because of the internet, it's relatively straightforward to find out how their money was obtained. And if you are feeling morally puritanical, to disapprove it. And that's what's been happening. And presumably will go on more and more because of the availability of the information through the web. Yeah, but I mean, there was a big demonstration yesterday outside the Museum of Modern Art, so that both the Museum of Modern Art and the Whitney are basically bankrolled by their trustees, and their trustees are hugely wealthy individuals. That's the tradition of the American Civic Museum, that you make your money and then you give it back to the community and the public through doing good works. And the tax system exists in order to support that, so that up until recently, you know, a few people might have raised an eyebrow, not least about Frick and Pierpont Morgan and Huntingdon. They were none of them. Indeed, Andrew Mellon himself nearly went to jail for tax evasion. And he gave the National Gallery of Art in Washington as a way of, in a way, laundering its reputation. So that it's not a new thing. It's just that traditionally it was... Um, people accepted it. Yeah, yeah, you, 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 you washed your sins by doing good work. You said just now that a movement in government that museums should be part of the entertainment business 
meant that you had to go on trips to have a look at things. Now, that struck me as interesting because you were directed by government there. How much involvement has government traditionally had in the direction in which museums should go? They've had a bit of involvement. I mean, it's public money. It comes from Parliament. When I started at the um, National Portrait Gallery, they had just set up something which was called the uh, Department of National Heritage, and the new minister was David Miller, until he was found sucking somebody's toes in a football top. <laughs> Uh, um, and then it was Virginia Bottomley. Just after I went to the Portugal, I remember Virginia Bottomley had been told, said to her civil servants, she wanted to visit a museum. And so she came. And I always remember because she said, where are the other people? And I said, but I'm showing you. And she obviously expected it to be like a hospital where all the sort of hospital staff would be arranged at attention outside the building and then she would have in a way a state ceremonial visit and i i the civil servant had said would you show her around and i said fine i'll show her around and in a way it's symptomatic of some of the ambiguities in the relationship so that i thought she was coming as a private citizen in order to see the museum but she obviously thought that she was coming, coming as a government official. And I think she was a bit annoyed with me for not being more dutiful. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, again, you, you, you alluded to John Major and the lottery fund. So that's government involvement in a, what is clearly an entirely beneficial way from the point of view of the museums and um, public culture. Um, now, in Saturday's Financial Times, there was a story on the front page about Sir Charles Dunstan, the founder of the Carphone Warehouse, who was chairman of the Royal Museums in Greenwich. One of his trustees was due for a reappointment, but the government refused because his academic work was said to advocate decolonising the curriculum. Dunstan said he would resign if the government interfered. The government did, and so he has resigned, leaving the post open for a new government appointee. And I wonder what your thoughts are about that kind of government in, in, in Well, people are getting very shocked about government interference in trustee appointments. But the honest truth is there has always been some level of influence. Um, I think I'm allowed to say my chairman of trustees, National Portrait Gallery, Henry Keswick, will under some circumstances, freely admit that he was appointed by Margaret Thatcher. Governments want people who are their supporters in positions of authority and prestige. I think the truth is that there's been a consensus in this country of a sort of middle ground where there's influence to an extent, but an incomplete uh, uh, influence. So that when I was when I started at the Portuguese, there was the the um, Prime Minister's patronage secretary. And when we were doing trustee appointments, I would ring up and I would say, uh, there are three or four people we're considering, what do you think? And he would say, I liked him, he was called John Holroyd. And, and he would say, no, I, I don't think so. Or I'm not sure that, that would go down so well. And it was all a kind of, uh, you know, you kind of knew that you could push the system to an extent, but at some, it, it was not written down. It was a very English way of doing things. What's happened since then is that it's all done through the Office of Public Appointments, so that it's a much more public system and they get interviewed. And the upside of that is that it's open to public scrutiny. But the downside is that when there's government influence, which there's at the moment, for example, in appointments to the BBC, I mean, we've got a more ideological government so that they they want their people and their people are a narrower spectrum of people and they have to be fully signed up to the government's agenda. Whereas in the past, you know, there would be a few government supporters, but 
plenty of people who weren't necessarily as totally signed up. So as you can tell, I'm not as hardline as some people are about this. I mean, I, actually, to be truthful, I was slightly annoyed that they said Jacob Rees-Mogg had been made a trustee of the National Portrait Gallery. He is a trustee because he's ex officio. He's the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. And ever since the foundation of the National Portrait Gallery, the Chancellor of the... Um, he's Lord President of the Council. Whatever it is, he's there ex officio. So that you can't say that he's been placed there in order to imp implement government policy. In fact, in my day, the Lord President's Council never showed up at meetings. So uh, it's not a very efficient way of influencing government policy. So it's, it's in fact, that aspect of it is, is a, utterly a non-story. Yeah, I, I, I just think people kind of throw in these things as if Oliver Dowden is just appointing mates of his. I mean, that is happening more than it did in the past. Um, and but, but what's slightly odd is that Charles Dunstan is himself. I think like David Ross, who's just resigned as chairman of the uh, Royal Opera House, you know, they are part of, I suspect, the magic circle of um, Johnsonians. So it's interesting that he's the person who's resigned. Yes. Yes, I, yeah, and leaving the, the problem about resignations of, of that, well, can be, the problem about resignations of that kind can be that they just leave the, the, the seat wide open to the government appointee, which is precisely the point they appear to be objecting to. We'll see. I, I mean, I think it is entirely plausible that the person who wasn't renewed wasn't renewed because it would have appeared on the desk of Oliver Dowden and Oliver Dowden would have put a red line through it because, as we know, they're not very in favour of of um, people who are hostile to our colonial past. Um, but um, the, the honest truth is that's happened to an extent under every government. Everybody complained bitterly about the incoming Blairite government because Blair, like any incoming government, they want their own people. They want to report, reward their party donors and they want people who they trust and can rely on to implement government um, policy to be in positions of authority. I think we, I should release you, Charles. You, um, th thank you very much indeed for allowing yourself to be drawn on all sorts of topics. Um, very illuminating and thought-provoking, as is your book. It is available at £30, so email or call us, and our copies have been signed by the author. Charles Somerysmith, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you.